says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vineyard keeper. He removes any of my branches that don't produce fruit, and he trims any branch that produces fruit so that it will produce even more fruit. You are already trimmed because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. A branch can't produce fruit by itself, but must remain in the vine. Likewise, you can't produce fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. That's the word of the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry, some more. Okay. If you remain in me, and I in you, then you will produce much fruit. Without me, you can't do anything if you don't remain in me. You'll be like a branch that is thrown out and dries up. Those branches are gathered up, thrown into a fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask for whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified when you produce much fruit, and in this way, prove that you are my disciples. That's the word of the Lord. This time. Always trying to get out of the thrown into the fire part. Thanks, Gary. So as we've seen in our Lenten season, as we've spent it dwelling on Jesus's rich images for himself, we're kind of rounding third and heading home into this communion section. Last week, Kendall Vanderslice talked about how bread uh, there's a slide for that, Matt. Uh, um, how bread all around the world is at its most basic, just flour and water. But it tells the story of creation and death and resurrection in each bite. This image is, um, the, the whole thing about it is amazing. What it says, but it's also by Sister Corita Kent, who was a nun who got into screen printing and started making all this amazing pop art that's in museums around the world. So Jesus, the bread of life, gives himself to us in bread and invites us into that nourishing life around the table. This week, we turn forward to a moment in Jesus's farewell discourse. We'll talk a little bit more about that and map that out in a sec. When he claims to be the true vine, and I think all that comes with that, namely wine, painstakingly prepared by the Father. We'll see Jesus saying, I am the true vine is shorthand for Jesus saying, I'm all of it. I'm the vine, I'm the vineyard, I'm the venter, I'm the best wine you've ever had. It's really fascinating to consider this image of Jesus, the true vine, as we slip into a global ecological crisis in which vines aren't always what they used to be. Um, Norman Wurzba, who teaches at the Div School, he, he writes, Jesus turns to plants because he believes that their living illuminates not only human life, but also somewhat shockingly God's own creating ways of being. I wonder if Jesus had been an American Southerner, and this is the point where I footnote, Jesus was not an American Southerner. <laughs> um, I think two things. I think he'd use y'all a lot. Um, and I also think he might make a spiritual metaphor for kudzu if he was in the American South. You know what kudzu is, right? Is that like Japanese weed that was originally planted to help stem erosion, but it's become invasive. 
uh, Southern writer James Dickey wrote a whole poem about kudzu, and he talked about how people in the South need to keep their windows closed at night so that kudzu doesn't like take over their homes. Oh, that the kingdom of heaven were as quick and successful as kudzu in North Carolina. But actually, on the contrary, um, ecologists are finding out how damaging and degrading to soil kudzu is. It's not just a pain when it takes over your garden, but it actually puts a lot of carbon in the atmosphere, too. So maybe Jesus' kudzu allegory might be something like the prophet's sorrowful intonations about how God had originally planted something really good and hopeful, and it turned out to be fruitless and harmful. Like Jeremiah 2 talks about a, a... vine of grapes planted for obedience and faithfulness, chosen for intimacy and union with God, and then something went wrong. It says, yet it was I who planted you a a precious vine of fine quality. How could you turn into a wild vine and become good for nothing? Or Isaiah 5, there's a, a whole song of the vineyard about God's intention and care that then slips over into neglect. says, he dug it, cleared away its stones, planted it with excellent vines, built a tower inside of it, dug a wine vat in it. He expected it to grow good grapes, but it grew rotten grapes. So that's kind of the setting for Jesus's I am the true vine are all these prophetic um, images and things in the background that his hearers might have heard. So Jesus, um, well, let me outline our farewell discourse a little bit. It's this kind of middle section in John. Uh, John is such a dynamic gospel. It's, it, it's you know, traditionally written by uh, a beloved disciple, so it, it is all about intimacy with God in Christ um, and has an extended um, passion narrative that we'll turn to next week during Holy Week as we tell the story of Jesus and the cross. This farewell discourse, um, even just right before it in John 12, is the story of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem that we'll celebrate next week at Palm Sunday, waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, I I think Palm Sunday is maybe the most ironic church holiday of the year because it's victorious even before um, and especially before Jesus' suffering. It's inside of that that victory and thrill and excitement and almost like a messianic political rally that Jesus kind of off to the side whispers things about how unless a tear of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it cannot have or give life. So there, there are all these little hints of what is coming. And then John 13 is Jesus bowing low, putting on an apron and washing his disciples' feet. It's also when Jesus is betrayed by Judas and denied by Peter. And then John 14 starts our final um, movement, our farewell discourse. We started our Lenten series talking about Jesus calling himself the way, the truth, and the life, this significant journey to and through the cross. John 15 is this passage that Gary just read, the true vine, how we're to love each other. And John 16 talks how we're supposed to testify to this love in the, in the world, even in a world that doesn't want to hear this, even in a world that might hurt us. 
In John 17, is Jesus' prayer that his followers might be holy, might be united, might be joyful, even as he leaves us and gives us the gift of his spirit. So here at the center of this really dense and dramatic teaching of Jesus' numbered days, we find an image of a vine with all of its centripetal and centrifugal force. Uh, we'll talk to like one of our science people, Seth Homer might be here. We can talk to her later about the science of that. Um, just a reminder, centripetal is, is in, centrifugal spins out. Scholar Michael Gorman helpfully coined these movements that in this passage, Jesus, is his desire for us is to abide in and go out. These aren't difficult concepts, but they are beautiful reminders of what life with God really requires. Sometimes less is more, and getting to less means denying ourselves and embracing all that God has for us. To abide... Our translation said to remain, remain in me. It keeps saying remain, 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 abide. It's dwelling language. To abide in Christ as branches on a vine is literally radical. The, the word radical is, is, is a root word. It is to be rooted. It means that we're, we're not freelancers. We're not free agents. We're not left out on our own, but we are bolted into the triune life of God through Christ's own life. That life has an, has an address. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, so we are to dwell in Jesus. It's a really patient and slow way of being. Maybe to overextend the agrarian metaphor, there's no miracle grow for this kind of life. It's just remaining. It's just receiving it's just being with Christ for the long haul because Jesus has pledged to be God with us even until the end of the age. How does that cash out for us? Uh, I think it means that for all the changes in our lives, seasonal changes like changes you choose, changes you don't choose, changes that happen on you, despite the person that you once were or no longer are or can't be or the one that you're striving to become, if you want to be, if you want to bear fruit, if you want to be verdant, fruitful, alive, you must be connected to Christ in a way that draws on his rich and infinite resources and learns to delight in that kind of connection. There's a few implications. I'm going to wrestle with this all day, I think. Um, hold on, let me shorten this arm up. This is way more of a physics lesson than I thought it was going to be. A few implications of this sort of connection, this sort of dwelling in Christ. First, this relationship, this rich image of a vine, dwell on that this week. Then think, why, why, the, why a vine, Jesus? Why, of all the things you could do, like, you, you have things like mighty oaks. You have these Middle Eastern um, almond trees. You have the, the cypresses and cedars of Kadesh. You have all these things, but Jesus chose this kind of scraggly vine. I think one thing is that it is an image that is personal and individual. There are little individual parts of the vine and things that we can focus and zoom in on, but it's not private. 
The majority of pronouns and verbs referring to branches in John 15 are plural. Again, this is Jesus the Southerner saying, y'all, y'all. All of you together must abide in me and bear fruit. Vines are notoriously both simple and incredibly complex. They're tangled up by nature. This means they are inextricable. They can't be taken apart or grown in rows. Even vineyards that are really tidy, if you go to like Dapa Valley, they're in rows, but if you zoom in and look at it, it's a tangle and cluster of things. Fruit grows almost indiscriminately on a healthy vine. So Jesus, the center and basis of our faith, Jesus who is Lord and King of the universe, has chosen this image carefully, but also, I think, playfully. He's, he's kind of saying to us, get used to messy and tangled and ugly and imperfect and slow and stubborn. Who you are with is who you have been chosen to bear fruit with. Under these exact conditions, abide, grow, together, y'all. Um, I, I had a, a great opportunity this last week um, just a short trip up to Blacksburg, I think there's a, a slide of our gathering, to be with some friends who were doing this. Um, these, these are friends at uh, New Life Christian Fellowship, NLCF, in Blacksburg, Virginia, and they hosted an Ecclesia regional gathering, uh, which was just a, a handful of folks from North Carolina and Virginia uh, and Pennsylvania came over, and these are this is, this is that growing together, that abiding together and, and sharing each other's burdens. Um, some of these pastor friends I've known since and even before the start of Oak Church, um, some of whom have seen so much change, COVID-related change, um, uh, church season-related change, leadership changes, some that they chose, some that they did not choose. And it was just a beautiful thing to to, to put these things together, to, to bounce them off each other, to stay in a home, to laugh together, to lament together. Um, and, and so it was a, a great experience on behalf of y'all just for a couple days of getting to um, abide in Jesus with these other friends, part of the vine in another place. Actually, probably in a better place to grow vines in, in uh, the foothills of Virginia. A second implication of, of Jesus' imagery of a vine is that this abide or dwell language connotes being in the presence of God, in the intimacy of the divine household with all of this mutual indwelling of the Father and Son by means of the Spirit. You cannot be intimate without being proximate. So this is challenging us to, to draw close to the God who has always chosen to come close to us. It also means um, if, if our human relationships are mirroring our relationship with God, that means to draw close to people, to, to, to not isolate, to not try to um, grow apart, but to grow together. There's no such thing as long-distance relationships in farming, Okay. It's just dirt. It's just there. Third implication that the, the vine is an image, um, especially how Jesus uses it, 
that is based on dependence, on our dependence, that we must remain in Jesus, and apart from Jesus, we can't do anything. The good news, though, is that being part of a vine is not really based on being good at being part of a vine. (laughs) It's actually kind of the opposite. Like, if you're good at this, it's because you've kind of taken your hands off the wheel and you, you've, you've let God be for you and with you and you've chosen to be with God. It's precisely because we aren't good at this that we can dwell in God. And so the questions that that, that generated for me is, how much do we actually depend on God? And this isn't a question meant to shame you. It, it, it is maybe more of an examine. Like, the, the, the question I had personally is, Am I too blank to really depend on God? Am I too rich? Am I too educated? Am I too busy? Am I too clever? Am I too charismatic? Am I too resourceful? Am I too prideful? Am I too shy? Like, some of these things that we actually count some of our greatest attributes, and some are actual real gifts, but we can lean into them and we can cause them to buffer us from our dependence on God. So those are all some of the implications of this remaining, abiding, being with and in Christ imagery. Now now the go part, the abide and then the go. Maybe part of this image isn't so straightforward. After all, aside from invasive kudzu, not many vines are known for their mobility. But the picture is rather that the vine's fruit far out extends the vine itself. The grapes aren't even primarily for the grapevine. As we reminded in the Lenten baptism class the last few weeks, God called a people and blessed them that they might be a blessing to the world. To the aged and barren Abraham and Sarah, this idea of fruitfulness is laughably impossible. That's why Isaac's name means son of laughter. Think think about that. Like, a hero in our Bible, God comes to her and she laughs at God, you know, through the angel. And that's a good thing. This is laughably impossible to them, but except in God, all things are possible. We're reminded that God makes a way where there is no way, and this image kind of tells us that the way is paved with fruit stands alongside of it. Again, a way that Florida is like the kingdom of God. No? No. (laughs) I'm a Floridian. No. We're shown what a fruitful life looks like in the lineage and expectation of this family as, Je- as God brings forth the volunteer crop of Jesus. Through Mary, with Joseph, but not exactly through him, and by the Holy Spirit. Again, there's a, a qualification of what fruitfulness requires and what it might entail. Despite paperback conspiracy Theodramas, Jesus bears fruit not by fathering a family, but by calling followers. That's an interesting twist. Jesus calls a ragtag group of 12 that kind of mimics and recaps the 12 tribes of Israel who are Abraham and Sarah's grandkids, right? And Jesus still calls followers, 
to be fruitful and to multiply in the same spirit that brought Jesus into human existence, and as we'll celebrate in a couple weeks, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's some of the resources that we're drawing on when we are connected to the vine. Jesus, the true vine, wants us to remain in him and to, to go bear much fruit in this world. If we remain in him, branches off this surprising and faithful vine, we can go into the world with more than enough fruit for ourselves and for our neighbors. So what does this fruit look like? Well, namely, it looks like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. It looks like that perfect mixture of the things each of us are already kind of inclined towards, but also the things that God is growing up in us, things that might even be surprising to us. This is a fruit stand in Barcelona. It looks really nice. It's particularly exciting and abundant when this sort of fruit growing and production happens together, happens collectively and corporately. When we bear and bring our composite fruits together for the good of Christ's body in the world. Um, a couple weeks ago, we had our elder uh, day away, our oak elder day away, where we spent a day. It was one of those like sticky note days, right? And the beautiful thing was um, those bright colored sticky notes were a reminder of all of these gifts, all of the fruit that God is bearing, not for each of us, though our families and our friends get the benefit of those things, but for this church, and, and that was just a, a small sample and representation of everything that God has given us and is continuing to grow in us together. So this fruit looks like, and this fruitfulness looks like committing to being led by and being with God over a long enough period of time that something good can grow. M mobility is not great for fruit growing, right? It, if, if, if you move houses with a lot of frequency, your garden's probably not going to be very good and your soil won't be very rich. It looks like being in community with others who can see and bear witness to and benefit from that growth, even when you can't see it and feel it. This is how we grow into Christ's likeness. In this way, even growth is an act of growing in trust of God the gardener. So many of us um, at times feel uncertain what we're supposed to do, where we're supposed to go, what our calling in this world can be. And Howard Thurman writes that if you want to know what you should be doing with your life, he says, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and do it because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And I think he's kind of ch channeling Irenaeus there. This is what it means to be connected to the true vine, to be pushed into the world, not out of scarcity or anxiety, but to be driven in fruitfulness and playfulness and faithfulness and generosity. Um, uh, I quote him earlier, but um, I think of how Norman Wurzba describes what true life looks like in agrarian terms, how how our goal is to be growing into Christ-likeness. And he says, from the start, Christians have believed that people should look to Jesus to discover what it means to become authentically human. 
to think and deal and act like he did, recognizing that people will do this in their own specific ways is to partake in the forms and flows of life that, that foster the best human life possible. So we don't do this because we, we, we think it, it's, it's this like um, painful and dehumanizing way. We think that it is actually a fruitful and rehumanizing way to live. He says, the reasoning at work in this belief is fairly straightforward. He says, if Jesus gave embodied expression to the eternal divine power that creates and animates and nurtures a good and beautiful world, then it follows that insofar as people participate in that power, they too will realize good and beautiful lives. Insofar as people have the spirit of Jesus animating their own bodies and hearts and minds, John 15 describes this in terms of, of persons as limbs grafted into Jesus the vine. We will maxim, maximally realize whatever potential is specific to each and every one of us. It says, put another way, when people are empowered to participate in his ministries of feeding and befriending and healing and forgiving and reconciling each other, they will also discover what human life is for and when it is best lived. Can I get an amen to that? This sounds pretty good. Yeah. So if that's what this fruit looks like, how does this fruit grow? Actually, sometimes painfully, <laughs> to be honest. Painfully slow, but actually the process is painful. Fruit is often born of suffering. By Jesus calling himself the true vine... Jesus is also connecting himself with being and becoming wine, the very fruit of that vine. This is a patient and painful process. Jesus, the true vine, reveals God is not only a pruner, but actually works at a significantly higher level as a winemaker. This should help us, because I think God the pruner can, can often get used in ways that's like, oh, bad thing happened to you? That's just God pruning you. Or that makes God out to be like that like overzealous, persnickety person that shouldn't have shears in their hands, you know? God is not persnickety, though. God is pruning with a purpose. Even the harvesting and the crushing and the long seasons of things being dormant or weird or full of change or dry or too wet are expressly part of God's plan in Christ by the Spirit to bring about intimacy and feasting and new life. Isaiah 53 forecast of this suffering servant. The Lord wanted to crush him and to make him suffer if his life is offered as restitution, he will see his offspring. He will enjoy long life. The Lord's plans will come to fruition through him. There's this video that's been going around of Jim Carrey, like, like that Jim Carrey, in living color, like Ace Ventura, Jim Carrey, Truman Show, Jim Carrey. Um, he's been hanging out with uh, Father uh, Boyle, Greg Boyle in L.A., uh, which tends to change people. It's changed many gang members over the years, and it's changing him. And he, he has this quote that is beautiful and fascinating, I think relates to this. He says, Christ on the cross suffered terribly and was broken by it to the point of doubt and a feeling of absolute abandonment. Then a decision was made to look on the people 
who are causing that suffering with compassion and with forgiveness. And that's what opens the gates of heaven for all of us. He, he says more, but he talks about how, how suffering is often a choice, how, how it is a, a, a choice to, to harden and to defend and to become embittered and, and unforgiving, or a chance to open up our lives to the God who has opened up his life to all of us by means of suffering. As we come to the climax and the culmination of the season of Lent, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we are most acutely aware that the first fruits of the new creation come through the terror and the trauma of the cross. Jesus himself in that garden prays, Father, this cup of suffering has to be taken from me. This, this wine of suffering has to be uh, offloaded because I can't even handle it. Jesus hated it. It broke him. But Jesus also embraced this suffering to save us and to allow us to feast in his healing and his victorious presence. In a moment, we'll gather around this table and we'll take this bread and this cup. And again, it tells the story of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. We'll remember that for that bread to happen, grain had to be crushed. And, and fired <laughs> for, for the juice to happen grapes had to be crushed and then as we take them we'll begin this metabolic process to make those things part of us with hopes that in some strangely analogous way that we will be deepened in connection with Christ in each other in this world that God so loves the bread of life, the, the one true vine taken, blessed broken and given for the sins of the world, for our life, for our fruitfulness. I want to just close. Gary read our passage so well, but I'm going to close by reading another version of it. And I just want you to close your eyes and, and listen maybe in a new way. This is the message paraphrase. It says, I am the real vine, and my father is the farmer. He cuts off every branch of me that doesn't bear grapes. And every branch that is grape-bearing, he prunes back so it will bear even more. You are already pruned back by the message I've spoken. Live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. I am the vine, you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate, organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood gathered up and thrown in the bonfire. But if you make yourselves at home with me and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my father shows who he is. When you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples. You all pray with me. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your invitations to abide with you, to go in fruitfulness and to trust in your process. Thank you that we don't do this alone, but that you are with us and we are with each other. 
I thank you that you've given us um, everything that we need in whatever climate to thrive, to bear much fruit. Lord, where we're feeling disconnected from you, from others, um, put us back together, remember us. Where we uh, feel like we don't have enough, help us um, be renewed and restored in that trust. And when we don't feel or see or know that we're bearing fruit, Lord, give us encouragement uh, from others who are, are benefiting um, from our gifts. We give you thanks for your presence with us, for showing up to us at the table as bread, as wine, and for feeding us. Thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.